0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. we may be seated. At first, um, I want to start with a confession. Um, I, over the past few weeks, have lied. Um, I said that we were going to make this a four-part series. And as I've wrestled with the closing of the Lord's Prayer, I prayed and wrestled with it and felt that these two final phrases need to be handled on their own. Um, And I fear that this particular sermon might be a little bit longer. Uh, And if I would also then include in this very challenging Request of lead us not into temptation, which begs the question: Does God ever lead us into temptation that we should ask Him not to? I felt like we need to do do this in in five sermons. So, so next Sunday we will finish up with um, with the lead us not into temptation. Luckily, though, even though I lied, this is the week that we are going to look at forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, And so, as you will see through this sermon, you are required by Jesus to forgive me. So that was convenient. But as we enter into this portion of the Lord's Prayer, it kind of reminds me of how challenging this portion is with regard to our current cultural situation. I don't know if it's just me, but it seems like our society today is, is lacking in mercy and forgiveness, especially mercy and forgiveness towards other groups, towards those tribes that are, do not align with our particular groups Views or ideology, sometimes along political or socioeconomic lines, racial lines, or anything else. And then as I look at the cesspool that is social media, I, I think we often see what is it, it, almost a, a sense of celebration when others who are outside of our particular tribe face the full cost of a particular offense. Almost being gleeful when others are crushed under the weight of their, their sin. And I want to I tread lightly as I talk about this because I don't want to, to just kind of simplify and minimize things because we, we, we should desire justice. It doesn't mean that, that we ignore justice and injustices that happen. And we we should not turn a blind eye to corruption or abuse that has happened. But I think that it goes beyond that. I I gain a sense that there's a level of self-justification, of almost pleasure, that comes when someone who is not considered one of your own is destroyed. And I have to say, I don't want to impose myself on you guys. I might just be a worse human being than everyone else, but I'm not above this. I think none of us are fully above this. We've been conditioned by our cultural situation. In a manner in which even whenever I I speak about these type of things, whenever I'm preparing a sermon about this, talking about our culture and society, the tensions, the discussions of things like cancel culture and stuff like that, I immediately tend to start thinking that is a problem with them. Whoever your them is. Instead of first and foremost realizing that's a problem with myself, that it's a problem within the tribes that I tend to align with, the ones that remind me of myself. But not only is there seeming to be a level of lack of forgiveness and mercy towards them, to the other, within our culture and society. There's also a trend toward denying the need for forgiveness for ourselves. It's a shift from recognizing the brokenness and sin and fallen pursuits of our own hearts Seeking forgiveness for justification, we, we shift, have shifted culturally in many ways from that to then seeking to affirm those things as good, hence they don't need forgiveness. Feeling as if we are always in the right and leaving us in a place where there's no forgiveness for ourselves because we've convinced ourselves that we don't need it. And in many ways, doing so is part of the human condition because we're actually just following in the footsteps of Adam. If you know the story, after it had fallen and Adam and Eve were hiding from God and then God calls them out, what's Adam's response The woman made me do it. It ain't my fault. It's the woman that made me do it. And by the way, just so you remember, God, you're the one that gave her to me, so it's kind of on you too, right? Didn't work out well for him. But that's the tendency to pass the buck, to assume that it wasn't something within ourselves. And so within this culture and society Forgiveness, I think, is waning in many ways. But the need for it for ourselves and our willingness to show it towards the other. And so I want to just spend a moment looking at this countercultural and liberating prayer that is also extremely hard. First, looking at the prayer for forgiveness and then looking at how our forgiveness and our forgiveness of others is tied together. And then I want to provide a couple of points about each to make sense of this portion of the Lord's Prayer. And so that we can also gain a sense of how this countercultural prayer provides a new framework for, through which to live in our current reality. So I begin with forgive us our trespasses. There's something interesting in this prayer because it assumes that we daily need forgiveness it assumes our fallenness it assumes our sinfulness saint augustine brilliantly used the lord's prayer this particular portion over and over again against his 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 defense against Pelagianism. Pelagianism taught this idea that that within ourselves, we have the ability to fulfill God's law, to live righteously, to be perfect. And Augustine would often say, if you are correct, then those of you who have achieved that have no need to pray the very prayer the Lord has instructed you to pray. And ultimately, you either can no longer participate in the liturgy of the church, or if you do so, you do so as a lie. And it's interesting that this prayer immediately follows what we spoke about last week. Give us this day our daily bread. It's as if we, as we shift into this acknowledgement of our creaturely need for physical sustenance that God would provide, that we are also reminded that as, as incarnate creatures, as physical beings, we are fallen, and as just as much as we need daily bread, we need forgiveness. It is as necessary for us as bread itself. And as I mentioned, there's A contemporary move away from acknowledging this reality. There's a shift even within the church to to townplay this idea of of what some theologians talk about as depravity. Moving into this mindset that there's ultimately nothing wrong with you and it's always them. But to be nice, we don't put a face onto them. It's just society or the man. I guess it's the man if you're from the 90s. I like to call him the man. But we always, there's somebody else, but there's nothing wrong with you. And I don't want to minimize because there, there is some truth to that and there is a part in that. But the, the fact is, is that the doctrine of, of total depravity should remind us that the reality is is that there is nothing, no facet within our world that hasn't been affected by the fall. Some people use total depravity to speak of an idea that is not actually what it intends to say. It doesn't mean that every single thing is evil or that there's no good within you. It means that every facet of our being and every facet of society is affected in some way by the great rebellion. And so the reality is, is yes, part of the problem is society or the man or them, because they're just like you and I, affected by the fall. And what has happened, and I think quite disastrously, so we want to move away from that. And I understand some, because that had been abused in certain contexts. We have the imagery of angry preachers just screaming at you. I'm just an excited preacher that screams at you. Just sounds like I'm angry sometimes. But no, but you know, we try to move away from that. Even within the global Anglican communion, there are some churches within our communion that have changed the liturgy to remove certain prayers that speak of our unworthiness, of our fallenness, of our sinfulness. Because it doesn't bolster our sense of worth or self-esteem. But not only within the liturgy, within many prominent, influential churches and preachers, it's a realization that People don't want to hear that they're jacked up. And so we preach a message that God loves you because ultimately you're a really, really good person. And I want to tell you that that might feel nice and might sound nice, but it's destructive. It's destructive for our very souls. Because within that, we begin to think that the love and acceptance that we have received from God is because we are such wonderful, lovable people. But what happens whenever we go home and we are aware of the fact that we aren't actually as good as we want to try to pretend to be? What happens when when stresses and hardships happen within our life and we realize that we're actually worse than we ever thought we were? then we've spent so long depending upon the fact that I'm lovable and acceptable to God because ultimately I'm a pretty good person. It's disastrous. I love Tim Keller. He's a Presbyterian minister in New York City and author of multiple books. I love how he said that That one of the most liberating things about the gospel is that as we enter into the gospel, we come to realize that we are far worse than we ever realized. And yet, simultaneously in the gospel, we are far more loved and accepted than ever imagined. That God knows the depths of darkness within each and every one of us more than we know that, and yet He still calls you, loves you, chooses you, and forgives you. That's the message we need. But also, you have within this this prayer, the "Forgive us our trespasses." Something that, if you um, are from a different uh, a tradition, you might have noticed when you're praying in our tradition, because we pray trespasses. And if you're ever in another tradition, sometimes they pray debts. <laughs> and some pray, forgive us our sins. And so it's different within each tradition, and, and part of it has to do with where the liturgy was formed out of and what was the prominent translation of the Bible when that particular liturgy was formed. And, and I don't want to, you know... Go Because I, I think it's the, the Presbyterians use debts more frequently. Um, burns me to say this, but they're more right than us. <laughs> the Greek word in the Matthew passage is the word for debt. That's what the word is. And... and it's an imagery that Jesus uses frequently to, to depict the reality of sin. We saw that in our gospel reading today with the parable. Tying forgiveness to, of sins with this idea of, of forgiveness of our debts. And I actually think that that reality of debt is, is in many ways a better depiction of the reality of our sin. See, because the idea of just forgiving sin can be thought of, of God just kind of looking past it. Ignoring it. Minimizing it. Say, no, forget about it. It's all good. But see, the reality of, of debt recognizes that our rebellion carries consequences. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. But forgiveness... Through this, this reality of debt reminds us that, that we do not need to pay the debt for our rebellion. That we're not shackled by the cost accrued by our sin that is beyond our ability to repay. That God is not in heaven glorying over the destruction that is ours because of what the consequences that we have accrued for ourselves. But instead, we aren't, wearing, we aren't under that weight of debt because our debt has already been paid. Sin has not been washed over, looked past, but the debt has been dealt with. And this idea of debt points us to important Old Testament imagery, Old Testament imagery that was important to, to Jesus. It was the imagery of the year of Jubilee. If you read in Leviticus 25, is every 50 years, there's a special year. It's called the year of Jubilee. And in that year, all debts were forgiven. Which means that land that was acquired by others is to be returned to their former owners. It means that captives are set free, that those who are enslaved because of a debt that they could not pay have to be released. Shockingly, most scholars say that we well they they look and there's no evidence that Israel has ever done that. It's so, shocking that people of Israel, you know, don't want to relinquish all of the debt, all of the land they've acquired or anything else. And they happen to conveniently ignore this idea of the year of Jubilee. But see, Jesus continually alludes to this with regard to his messianic mission. He uses this language of he's coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is the language that was used to proclaim the year of Jubilee. He constantly... Equates the forgiveness of sins, like I said, as releasing the debts, making allusions to Isaiah 61, which was understood in the first century as a promise that the year of Jubilee would come. The idea that he was bringing good news for the poor, release for the captives. These things were over and over again spoken by Christ. And it was actually something that was expected, and anticipated. Within the first century, the Jews were looking for this. They had this idea that the Messiah would then come and usher in an eschatological. That means an end time, a ongoing perpetual year of Jubilee. And it makes sense that they they kind of all of a sudden wanted it to come because at that moment. they were racked with deep debt. Someone else owned their land. And many of them were enslaved in bondage to Rome. But we see that when Christ came, he says that this year of Jubilee that he is ushering in is forgiveness of debt that is far greater than simple money that has been built up. And that the land that is being returned is not, re- is not limited to this particular little piece within the Middle East, but it encompasses the entire world and it would be returned back to its true rightful owner, its original owner, which was its creator, God himself. And see, the thing is, is as we pray this prayer, we are reminded that as Christ redeemed people, we are ushered into a new reality, a jubilee reality. This prayer points us towards this greater reality of God's fulfillment of his promises in which, yes, our particular debts are included, but it also takes our prayers for forgiveness and brings us out of the purely narrow focus on our personal relationship with God and spills forth into the reality that God's work of forgiveness encompasses all of creation. It not only reshapes our relation to God, but it reshapes how we live within the world because our forgiveness brings us into a new countercultural reality being established by Christ. That we are living within a perpetual jubilee. Which leads into this idea where our asking for forgiveness from God is tied to our forgiveness of those who trespass against us. This is where it gets really hard. This is where I feel like it's easy to skip past. Because it's a really hard phrase. And the Greek word for as has a ton of different meanings. So this idea of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, the question is, is then our forgiveness contingent upon our ability to forgive others? Is God's forgiveness of us a product of our forgiveness of others? Is our forgiveness of others just a reflection of similarity to God's forgiveness of us? And as we wrestle with those things of, of, is it saying that Our forgiveness is tied to God's or is tied to our willingness to forgive others. But then that asks the question, what about grace? What about all of the passages throughout the New Testament that says that forgiveness does not come from works, but through repentant faith in Christ's sufficiency alone? Were the reformers wrong? Should it be that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone? Well, faith alone, plus our ability to forgive others. And if you read on from the passage immediately after the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6:14 through15, Jesus complicates it even more. Because he says, "If we forgive others, God will forgive us." And then he says, "If we will withhold forgiveness, God will also with us.". But it can't be a simple do this and God will forgive. Because you have to read this in light of the fullness of the council of Scripture. And it would counter much of the New Testament. You look at Jesus' ministry, he was constantly, flippantly throwing forgiveness out left and right. Whenever he found the woman in adultery, Samaritan, or anybody else, it doesn't indicate that he first grilled them on whether or not they have already forgiven others. Before he dispensed forgiveness to them. Throughout the epistles, we see that it, there's a clear indication that justification and forgiveness is a free gift of God, tied to nothing of our own. So I, I'm not, I don't know if I can give you the, the clear, perfect answer to this tension. But I think there's some some key points that that help us understand what is going on here. One um, individual that was helpful to me was Callistus Ware. He's an Eastern Orthodox bishop and also a professor in Oxford. And he says this, It is not that God is unwilling to forgive us, but if, despite God's unfailing eagerness to forgive we on our side harden our hearts and refuse forgiveness to others then quite simply we render ourselves incapable of receiving the divine forgiveness closing our hearts to others we close them also to god rejecting others we reject him if we are unforgiving their own act then then by our own act we place ourselves outside the interchange of healing love god does not exclude us it is we who exclude others See, to deny forgiveness of others is to deny the very source of our own existence of God's people. It is forgiveness that enables us to be able to speak to the sovereign creator of heaven and earth as our father in the first place. To retain the debts of others also creates a very dangerous precedent because it begins to make us think that our forgiveness is somehow tied to something superior in us. Kind of like the idea of the parable read today. Kind of like the very dangerous thing of minimizing our depravity so thinking that we are accepted and forgiven because of something superior within us. The question is, is as we pray this prayer, as we pray the prayer of Christ, as we ask for his forgiveness on us, are we aware of the reality of the kingdom of God that is breaking in? that the year of Jubilee has been initiated? Because if so, we can be absolutely certain of our own forgiveness. But also, if so, that means that he has relinquished the debts of the entire world. But if not, then we can't be certain either of our own forgiveness nor of others. And also, finally, I I think there's an element in which the more we recognize the extent of our own debt, the more we love him, the forgiver of our debts. And then in turn, we are able to forgive those whom our Lord has forgiven. In Luke seven forty-one through 48, there's the story of a woman of ill repute who was washing Jesus' feet with her tears and hair the religious were looking at him and saying, how can this man be a prophet? He doesn't know what this woman is like. And Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. And then he makes this statement. For those who are forgiven much, love much. See, our forgiveness unites us to him. And when we recognize the extent of our forgiveness, we recognize the inexhaustible grace that has been shown to us. And we are united to the one that hung upon that cross, had every right for vengeance, but instead of spewing out vitriol, struggled to utter these words, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This passage needs to be read in light of the whole of Jesus' teaching and the rest of Scripture. But we also can't wash over the challenge of these words. because it's far too easy to do so. Because it's a reminder that the costly, unwarranted and indiscriminate, almost reckless grace that canceled all of our debts is not just a personal transaction between me and Jesus, but a payment made for the whole world. And as we acknowledge that we can be assured of our forgiveness, but also then cannot deny the forgiveness that extends to even the most depraved, even our greatest enemies. So a couple of words in closing. Because I think something needs to be said. How do we forgive? What does it mean to forgive somebody? So a popular phrase, I think some people think that it's from a phrase from the Bible. There's hints of it with regard to God, but the idea of forget and forgive. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's from Shakespeare. King Lear. Forgiving is not forgetting or ignoring what has been done. Because actually to forget frees us from the challenging work of forgiveness. Forgiveness requires remembering and acknowledging the hurt, recognizing the wrong done. We don't minimize the injustice, the pain that has been caused, the relationship broken, the beauty distorted. For to do so would be to minimize the radical extent of God's forgiveness. Limiting grace to only cover minute infractions. But also forgiveness is not remembering through a disposition of hate, anger, and vengeance. It's remembering through a position of sorrow for what transpired, but also hope for redemption. It is a remembering with a disposition of love. And I think we are able to forgive when we are become more acutely aware of how how much has been forgiven of us. The depths of God's love and grace. That's why the repetition of every Sunday, it might seem like we need to get a little bit more creative and kind of change things up. But the fact is, is the repetition is intentional. And the church has been doing this for for ages and ages because the repetition is every Sunday, no matter what the world says to us, we are forced to come and acknowledge our unworthiness, our brokenness and our fallenness. And as we say, I am fallen and broken, I am unworthy, I have sinned in what I have done, and what I have, not, what I have left undone, there's no health within me. God proclaims absolution over us. When we say, I have no right to come to your table, Jesus says, stand up and come to my table. It is a perpetual rhythm of reminding us of our absolute need of forgiveness and the fact that his forgiveness will never, ever be exhausted. And so we do it over and over and over again, reminding us every Sunday. Because we're going to need that until the moment of glory. And also we need to remember that these words that we pray our words that says that we are to release the debts of others as our Father has released ours. Forgiveness is offered to all by our Lord, but not all are restored to relationship with him. Sometimes we must forgive those who have harmed us, but that doesn't mean that through that, what was lost will be restored to us. And receiving forgiveness requires recognition of the need for forgiveness. We can't make someone repent. We can't make someone acknowledge they need to be forgiven. We can't do that because Scripture makes it very clear that only the Holy Spirit can do that. Finally, letting go of the debt accrued. It's ultimately not seeking vengeance. A vengeance that gives us a sense in which they've paid for what they've done. But instead, it's releasing that. And if things don't change, they don't change. But nonetheless, we hope Redemption and restoration. So I want to close with this story of you may have heard of a guy named Richard Wormbrand. His wife, Sabina. He uh, they were Romanian Jews in the early 20th century. They became Christians in the 1930s. Um, Richard was ordained an Anglican priest then he changed to Lutheran. Don't hold that against him. (laughs) Still a decent guy. But no, he was a priest in Romania. And then he and his wife were imprisoned and tortured by the Nazis as Jews. And then later, Richard spent long stints in prison by the Soviets as a Christian. He's the founder of the Voice of Martyrs. We know that Sabina's parents were captured by the Nazis, tortured and killed in concentration camps. Richard recounts this one story that during World War II, they were in their home, and some Nazis showed up at their door, hiding from the Soviets. Richard let them into his home, and they recognized that he was a Jew. They questioned him on why he would do such a thing, letting him know that they hate Jews. And he told them that if you enter into my home, you are my guest, regardless of the atrocities that you have done. Sabina was hiding in another room, realizing she's facing the faces of the people that killed her parents in the gas chamber. And then the story goes that she came out, prayed a blessing on them, told them that she forgives them, and made them a meal. That's not possible. That's not normal. That's not how our world works. But when you encounter the radical grace of God, when we realize that the sovereign Lord of all creation has ushered in a perpetual year of jubilee that is breaking forth into our world, you live by different rules than the world lives by. So forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We pray this radical countercultural prayer. When we do so, we are entering into a new reality, a reality in which we are free from the incessant need to be in the right, to appear as if we're all, we always have it together, that we're always the good guy so that we can rest in the fact that in spite of depravity still with still at war within us we are God's beloved released from all debts forgiven by God's grace and with that we are invited into a new epoch that is breaking into our current age a reality of perpetual jubilee in which all debts have been canceled those imprisoned by injustice, hate, and sin are set free. And all things are restored to the rightful owner and creator. A reality in which hate, evil, slander, and corruption is retaliated with love, grace, blessing, and restoration. We've been brought into an age of forgiveness. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. my God is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy